0: So one question for you, Andrew, before I get done, uh, I asked you this this morning, how many siblings do you have, um, what are their religious convictions, and what is your relationship like with them? Yeah, and I, and I should answer, because someone came up to me already today and said, so you said your mother died when you were 10, and yet she hit you when you were 18, how did that happen? Um, yeah, so my father remarried, and I, so I call her my mother, I don't, you know, she's not, she is my stepmother, but, and so I have... I am in the middle. I have an oldest brother that is a blood relative and a youngest sister that's a blood relative. And a stepbrother and stepsister fit in between. So i got two older brothers and two younger sisters. Um, all of them are practicing atheists for the most part. Um, my, my stepbrother and my real sister, uh, both have, they are bar and bat mitzvahing their children. So I have bar, both a bar and bat mitzvah this year to attend and but they're not it's it's a reformed judaism which is a, a very liberal judaism and so they're not really practicing other than really a cultural thing and that's more of you know where it's at my my parents uh haven't attended synagogue since moving to florida about 30 years ago i think so they've gone my father has gone fully from orthodox uh to when i was young we were conservative and then Basically every time he moved he he kind of reduced because we moved and he went reformed he moved to Florida and doesn't do anything uh, so I'm the only believer in my family uh, my wife's side of the family um, she has one sister that we believe she has uh five siblings um she's the middle of the of the of the uh the girls she has uh there's um Five girls and then an oldest brother. And only one sister that we think is a believer, uh, being in the area we are, uh, her sister uh, survived 9-11. And, sorry. So that is what played into her coming to Christ. And so, so we don't have at family gatherings, <laughs> we don't really, uh, family gatherings are a hard thing for us especially uh, my family gets together in Thanksgiving. And um, uh, so my family, we used to take turns going to different houses for Thanksgiving. Uh, my house was now ruled out of, um, we're not allowed to have Thanksgiving in my house because my house has no alcohol. And that seems to be a real problem for them. Uh, so Thanksgiving is usually my family gets together and they get to consume as much alcohol as they can so that they could put up with one another i th- think um so it's a fun time to be sober <laughs> um, yeah so <clears throat> yeah so to, today i want to you know i want to just start with a little bit of uh, of a recap before i do i i do i, I said this to to pastor jim yesterday uh, last night. And he said, you know, you should let folks know this. Um, this is actually one of the hardest seminars I do. It's the one I do the most often. And it's the one I'm most familiar with. Why is it the hardest? It's not that I don't know the material. This is hard for me because all of our other seminars are Bible-based. <clears throat> this one is practical-based. So this one, because of the way we structure this, there's a lot of stories. And I, we put those stories in on purpose so that you realize that you can do this. There's absolutely nothing special about me or anyone else that I go out with on my team that they're like the super spiritual ones that can do this evangelism. The only thing different with us is we've been practicing. That's it. And and so I share all the stories so you realize you can do this too. There's nothing out of the ordinary with me or anyone on our team that makes us different in that way to be gifted with evangelism there is no gift of evangelism but this is so that's why this is hard i prefer being in in scripture so sunday you'll see very different there won't be joking around there you know it won't be as much okay maybe a little so here's here's a trick that i learned in preaching they don't teach this in homiletics class you ever go in church and people start falling asleep i know no one here ever does that with pastor jim i know I'm bringing my pillow next time I hear him preach. No, but people get tired. Now, I knew a guy that actually would call people out if you were sleeping. Hey, that guy in the red shirt there, wake him up. I've watched him do that. Not the best way of doing it. I discovered not only I talked last night about humor. I discovered actually that humor wakes people up. It, 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 it gets your endorphins your going, and you wake up, and you don't, so it's, I think it's a more polite way to, so years ago, I started using humor only when I saw people starting to fall asleep, which my church realized they would do this when, they wanted to know who was sleeping when I would tell a joke or something, uh, so now I have to learn to mix it in just to keep you all awake, <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, if, if you hear me telling the stories, it's not because I'm, if there's, it's not because I'm trying to say that there's anything about me. It's not that I'm narcissistic. I don't name ministries after myself. Um, Oh, sorry, Justin, I didn't see you there. Um, (laughs) That's okay. He's going to come back and tell me that striving for eternity is, you know, is, is working together with God on salvation. And I'll just have to accept and correct him and say, no, you're not creative. And I was thinking sanctification, you know, (laughs) <laughs> um, actually, you can, hear, you can hear Justin and I kick around with that on, on the Apologetics Live podcast. I'll mention that later. But. So what we talked about yesterday, and, and we're going to continue this morning, is to overcoming the fear that we have in evangelism. Okay? Every one of us is going to have some fear. You know, I said I've been doing this for a long time. I still get nervous. That first person I talk to is always the hardest. I said to someone last night, what I end up doing is I, I can rationalize now after so many years to go, okay, I know I'm nervous, but I also know that once I get this one done, the second one's easier, and the next one's easier. So I can rationalize it because I have years of, of doing it. That's why I used to force myself to talk to one person a day or share the gospel with one person a day, even if I just handed out a gospel tract. The funny thing was my, I went on a vacation with my in-laws, my wife's family, And um, my brother-in-law walked up, to me. we stopped at a rest stop, because I don't know, it's something about my wife's family. Every two hours, they must go to the bathroom whether they need to or not. So we do these long drives, and we have to stop. So they're all in the restroom, and I'm just sitting outside the rest area like this. Do you get one of these? 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 Because the nice thing about rest areas, is lots of people there. My brother-in-law walked up and goes, you can just work anywhere, can't you? I'm like, anywhere where there's people. Airports. I do a lot of travel. They got nowhere to go. So... (laughs) (laughs) The problem nowadays, everyone's got these little things in your ear. You know, it's like, hey, excuse me, can you take those out, I want to talk to you. They don't like that. <laughs> but the, the thing is, is that what we want to do is overcome that, that fear that we can have. And the first thing I said is one of the things that we most fear, if we're really going to be honest, we get that anxiety over, is those difficult conversations where people are argumentative. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. This used to be my experience when I first used to share the gospel. I'd I'd hand someone a gospel tract or I'd talk to someone about the gospel. I'd have such anxiety because of the fear of what I'd expect that conversation was going to go because in my mind, it was going to go much worse than it usually did. And I'd have such anxiety. And I'd be like, I'm glad that's over. I don't want to do that again for another three months. You know, it's like, I want to avoid that. And we have that and what I'm trying to do is help us to, to disarm those things that are going to create the anxiety so we can remove the fear, okay? And we have to realize that there's p- times where we have a fear, even if it's not rational. We have to recognize it and move on. I have a friend of mine who's got a fear of heights, and it's, he knows it's not rational, he can't be, we, we, we we're in a hotel, we, had, we were in the hotel room together, I, it, was, it was really funny because I travel a lot, so I get perks of staying at the same hotel, so they put me in like the top floor, and he's like, oh no, no, could, could we could, we got to go to a lower floor. The, the hotel person at the front desk was like, you want what, sir, you want to go to a lower floor? No one asks for a lower floor. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it's just, he's like, and he knows it's completely irrational, and if he's forced to, he deals with it. That's the same thing we have with evangelism. If we're forced to, we have to deal with it. And I'm going to hopefully give you some, some ways of dealing with it where, A, we won't have the fear, and then later on today, I'm going to give you a way where I can tell you that any conversation could be a gospel conversation. You don't have to wait for an opportunity. That might seem strange, because people usually just say, no, i got to wait for God to open a door. Yeah, I think God says, just go through make it happen and we'll go through that later but the first thing that we talked about last night was to disarm their defenses okay by using humor being polite not being not being trying to be a comedian but lightening the conversation being polite in the conversation so that they're not looking to be argumentative so they're not looking for a fight that's really the goal we we want to have it where they're not looking for a fight I said that there was another person that could be uh, defensive, and that's us. And so we want to learn how to ask good questions. Now, I told you last night I was going to tell you a really stupid thing that I did. Now, if Pastor Jim thinks he's going to embarrass me by telling him about what he did to me with Officer Black, I'm, <clears throat> I'm going to undercut that. It won't be, you're going to, after this story, you're going to go, what you did to with Officer Black is nothing. So I'm sorry. I'm going to steal the thunder right out from underneath you. You should have told the story when you had the chance. <laughs> <laughs> so I was in Freehold, New Jersey. Uh, I was standing on a ledge that was in the, right by the courthouse and I was proclaiming the gospel and a guy walks up to me and says, Christianity is so stupid really can you prove that I said what do you show me how is it stupid he says I can prove it he goes he says how many chromosomes are there in a human being anyone know the answer 46 so I, that's what I told him he says how many from the mother 23 how many from the father 23 he says see 23 doesn't divide by two Some of you just got it, right? My reaction was this. I got defensive cuz he's call, he's calling basically me stupid for believing in Christianity, saying all of Christianity is stupid. So I said this brilliant thing. You're such an idiot. You don't divide 23 by 2, you divide 46 by 2. And he got up and walked off. Why? He walked off because I acted like a jerk. And that allowed his pride to feel like, well, he's a jerk. He just proved me right. All those Christians are stupid. And in his pride, he could walk off and ignore the content of the message I was proclaiming. Now, I sat and I thought about this while I was still proclaiming. My brain works strange. I like doing multiple things at once. That's why I love open-air evangelism. I get to see a whole crowd of people walking around, you know, like you get, you have a hundred people, dozens of them all shouting out questions to you all at the same time. I enjoy that stuff. I'm odd. I know. So I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, and I'm like, you know, I allowed this guy to walk away in pride and feel that he was in the right when he said something that was really dumb. Now I did what I know every single person here would have done. You recognize you did something wrong. And you repent so I said God I was stupid would you please forgive me would you possibly give me a second chance have that guy come back so that I can handle this correctly you know God is so good he really is so in this guy comes right from my left side he comes walking up and as he's walking past he says are you still stupid And without hesitation, I turned and said, are you still an idiot? (laughs) Lord, a third time. So God is good. And then the guy comes from the right. And he says, are you still stupid? And I got off the ledge. I walked over to him. I said, sir, the way I spoke to you was wrong, it was sinful, it was rude. Would you please forgive me? He goes, well, you're still stupid, and he walked off. (laughs) But I learned one of the most valuable things that day, that I can be defensive when sharing the gospel, because they're saying things about either something I believe very strongly or they're speaking against Christ, someone I love very much. I get very defensive with that. And so I started to realize I got to do something to disarm my own defenses. What can I do so that I don't have that pressure? And I learned something that if you learn this one thing, it's going to remove most of your fear. Because most people are afraid of the challenges that they're going to get when sharing the gospel. And I learned how to ask good questions. I learned that every time someone gives me a challenge, I ask a question. And that's all you have to remember. Someone challenges you, ask a question. Now, where's all the pressure on them? James, I mentioned James last night. He was a heckler of mine for many years. <clears throat> Always would ask the same questions. Some of the early years when I came to Union Square, this is also the advantage of going to the same place week after week, year after year. You get to know your hecklers. You become friends with them. I'm gonna tell you about Solomon Siegel's son, that vile guy. I'm gonna tell you some real crazy things he's done, and I'm gonna tell you some changes that occurred. But here's the thing <clears throat> James got up. It was, I think, the first or second year that I was going to Union Square. We had a crowd of people, and I'm sitting there, my voice started going because we had been, this was like the third day of, of open air we were doing. And James comes up and he's shouting, there is no God cause there's evil in the world. There is no God cause there's evil in the world. And I just stopped and I said, James, tell me how can there be evil without God? See, he's used to challenging the Christians, but he's not used to having to answer for what he says. And so he said, well, what's evil? I said, I didn't say it exists. You did. What am I doing? I'm putting the burden of proof back on him, right? I didn't say there's evil in the world. You did. How can you have evil without God? He's like, well, well, tell us what evil is. Okay. Evil is the absence of good. Good is defined by the nature of God. How can you have evil without God? And he goes, oh, and walked out of the crowd. Everybody laughed. You have to understand, James never walks out of the crowd. James has got a pride that was taller than the Empire State Building. James, I'll tell you how prideful James is. Uh, for the first five years that I was going out to Union Square, one of the things I always like to do is shake the hands of my hecklers. Um, in New York, I carry a lot of Germex. I um, I don't know where their hands have been. Um, the reality, though, is... I mean, have you ever been in the New York subway? Okay, so you understand. So (laughs) here's the thing. It took five years for James to shake my hand. Every day when I would get to Union Square, first thing I would do is I would go to Solomon, I'd go to James, because they were always there. First thing I would do, I'd, I'd go up to him, I'd say hello, and I'd let them know, I've been praying for you this week. What got James to shake my hand that day? It was Because when I would leave, I would always say, I'm pray- I'll be praying for you this week. And they'd always be, God, I don't need you praying for me. Well, this time, when I got to the park, James said, really, you praying for me? I said, yeah, I pray for you every day. He says, no, you don't. I said, I'll show you. I opened up my phone. I pulled up my prayer list. I pulled up for where I pray for unsaved people, and I pulled it up, and he not only saw his name, he saw that I was praying for his aunt. He didn't know I knew about that situation. He had had a relative in prison. I was praying for that. He realized I was praying for him. First time that he ever shook my hand. I've been asking for all these years if I could take him out to lunch. Never never got to take him to lunch. I have taken Solomon to lunch. But here was the thing. You know, one time, we're sitting there, we had a, an event, and I had four stacks of Chinese food leftovers. He's homeless. He's so prideful. He was like, I said, hey, James, could you use some food? I, we're, we're, we, we don't have too much. We don't have a place to refrigerate it. You know, he's like, oh, no, no, I just ate. I just ate. Well, okay. So... I go to leave, and I'm like, well, I'll tell you what, you, you know some of the guys that are homeless out here. Can you just maybe give it to them? You know, say you got it for them. He's like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll do that. I'm walking down the steps of, of Union Square. I'm, I'm about maybe as far as from here. The the, the the steps go from, like, here to the to the doorway there. I'm, like, about halfway there, and I turn and look, and James has devoured with his hands... Two of the plates, like the, just, he shoved in. There's two empty ones on the floor. He's on the third one. By the time I got to the end of where the door is, he finished all four. He was starving, but he'll tell me he just ate. That's pride. And, and that's what we would deal with. And, and these are guys that are looking, literally looking for the new Christians to come out to Union Square. They, they're like, ooh, fresh meat. And they look to try to get people upset. Now, I have been doing this by asking questions. And here's the thing that ends up happening. Over time, people end up seeing that I'm engaging with them. I'm not just preaching at them. I'm not yelling at them. I'm engaging with them. Whether it's a one-on-one conversation or whether I'm doing the open air. It builds a better respect with people. That's what questions end up doing. It allows them to be in the position of teacher. There's an advantage to that. You see, Socrates, it's called the Socratic model. Socrates realized that questions do something different with the thinking. See, if I'm listening to you just to to attack what you're saying, I just want to criticize you. It doesn't take much thinking. I just have to look for something that I can point a hole at. I'm really not listening to anything you're saying. I'm not processing it. I'm not giving it any weight. I'm just looking to throw darts. That is what most people end up doing. They throw challenges. They don't even have answers. James never thought about the fact that you cannot explain evil without God. Never dawned on him. What happened? By asking, excuse me, by asking a question... He now had to process things differently. This is why Socrates taught by questions. Because he realized that what he was doing was asking a question. People are processing that information on their own to give an answer. Now they have to think it through. Now what happens when we think things through is we end up thinking about the, the pros and cons to arguments. We think about the things that where someone else might put, put, poke holes in the arguments. So we process it. And before we give the answer, we want to give an answer that isn't going to be knocked over, especially when you're trying to challenge someone. Because when you give an answer, they're going to maybe challenge you back. Right? So what did James do? James's way of doing was, well, you tell me what evil is. Right? What do they try to do? Shift the blame back to you. I mean, you're going to see this all the time. You'll, you'll, they'll challenge you. You ask them a question. They want to shift it back to you. If you deal with any atheists, this is how the atheists do it. Anyone know what atheism means? There's no God. The belief that there is no God. Not anymore. Because they don't like to say they're agnostic, because agnostic means to not know. But they say they do know, which is always a beautiful thing, right? We don't know what was in the beginning of the universe and what started everything, but we know it wasn't God. Hmm. Hmm. So you can tell what it wasn't yes okay so because they don't want to say they're agnostic the new definition of atheism is i lack a knowledge in god and therefore you have the burden of proof having a positive argument you have the burden of proof to prove god exists i have no burden i have a negative argument i just lack belief therefore i have no burden of proof Nobody acts on a lack of belief. We act on what we do believe. Nobody is going to write books on atheism because they lack a belief in something. They believe something. That's why they're writing their book. How can I prove that? Very simple. I I do this all the time with atheists, say they lack a belief. One of the things I'll do is I'll say, "Do do you read any books on atheism? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You read, like, blogs and go to the blog sites and read Oh, yeah, 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 See any documentaries? Oh, yeah. Now, I go to the Reason Rally. That's a big atheist church event in D.C. every four years where they try to affect the elections. Um, if you ever want to you know, evangelize, it's a great place to go. Lots of atheists there. And the thing that I always do with them is I say, so you, you read these books and you read these blogs and you, you watch these documentaries and you do all this. Um, why do you do this if you're, if you're lacking a belief in something? I mean, why spend all that time? And they think about it for a bit. I said, well, let me ask you. At, in December, do you ever go to the mall where they're taking the pictures of that guy in the red suit with the, the fake beard? Do, do you ever go there and, and shout out, Santa's not real? And they go, no. I say, Why? Here's the answer I get more than any other. Because everybody knows he doesn't exist. I say thank you. And I wait for it to settle in. If you're not willing to go to the malls to say that Santa doesn't exist because you lack a belief in Santa, why are you reading those books? Why are you reading those blogs? Why are you going to reading, watching the movies, the documentaries? And why are you going to the Reason Rally? The reason you're doing that is because you know God exists and you're trying to suppress that in unrighteousness. You know, and that's the thing. They're they're trying to get the burden of proof off of them and onto you. You'll see this over and over again. And once you ask the question, you're going to see them try to push it right back. But one of the things that question does is it's going to push that burden of proof back on the other person. Okay? And... You're, the thing with that is you want them to be processing what you're thinking. Look, we are not going out sharing the gospel one-on-one with a person just because we're not Jehovah's Witnesses. It's not like we have to do this so that we can get those those merits for heaven. Okay, They have to go out and and share with folks enough about the watchtower so that they can get enough points to get into the new earth because actually they can't get to heaven. There's, they only say there's 144,000 in heaven and it's all full. So I'm going, gee, so you're giving me the choice of earth? I mean, I'm kind of thinking New Jersey's hell. I'm just saying. You know, all good things come out of New Jersey. Yeah, it's true. It's the stuff that stays that's a real problem. And and so when you're asking questions, you're getting people to process. That's what we want. We want people thinking about the gospel. We're not just there to lecture to them. We want them thinking about it. So, so let me give you a couple things that questions do. First, you can ask questions to gather information. This comes from, I know most of you are familiar with the book Tactics. If you're not, I recommended it yesterday, get Greg Kogel's book Tactics. This is where a lot of this is going to come from. Well, so this, what's on this slide, okay? Where he provides different things that questions do in navigating a conversation. And the thing that, we're gonna, that you end up seeing is that you can gather information from someone. That's very useful. Whenever I talk to a Muslim, I have certain questions I always ask. I ask them up front to gather the information so I can use it later. What are those questions? One question I always ask, is God greater than our ability to understand him? They always say yes. Good. I just store that away. I'll ask them whether the Bible, if it contained an error, could it have been written by God? They'll say no. Okay? Store that one away. Why do I do that? I gather certain information because later when we start talking about things, I'm going to show a contradiction in the Quran. And if they recognize the contradiction, they suddenly realize, I'll remind them, we already said that the Bible contained an error. It couldn't be from God, therefore the Quran cannot be from God. What's the one error I always go to? Do you know? And so this is another question I ask up front. I'll ask them, can you tell me what the Christian view of God is, specifically the Trinity? Now, with that, I usually will get the answer, three gods. Is that right? No. The other thing that I will sometimes get is I'll ask them, "Who?" makes up the Trinity. Now, if I ask that of you, who makes up the Trinity? Father, Son? Okay. In the Quran, it teaches that it is the Father, the Son, and the Mother. Allah says to Jesus, did I ever say to you and your mother that you are gods? Now, if I have a Muslim who is an Arabic Muslim from the Middle East that have no interaction with Christianity, they will tell me that the Trinity is the Father, the Mother, and the Son. If I get someone that defines it as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, I know I'm dealing with a westernized Muslim, and now I know how to gauge that conversation. I now know how much Christianity they understand. If they say, the, as I had this in California a couple months ago this summer, and I had, I had four Arabic-speaking Muslims and they said, the Quran doesn't say that. The Quran doesn't say it's Mary's God. I turned to the verse. I had, well, that's only in the English. I said, well, you have the Arabic? Read it. And one guy reads it and they start talking to each other in Arabic. And the other guy goes, well, no, it's a, that's a, let's get this translation. I said, wait a minute. In, in the Quran, there's only one Arabic translation you guys were telling me. Now you're saying there's a different Arabic. Their conclusion was, you gotta love when you get someone to this point. They said, "You know, you, you gotta talk to our imam." Well, I'm talking to you. Can, I mean, you're reading the Arabic. You understand Arabic? Does it say that the that we Christians call Mary God? He goes, "Well, I know what this says, but there's many different meanings. And the one thing I do know is the meaning you give it isn't the meaning." That's someone that just hit that wall of reality, right? How did that happen? It happened with questions. I ask those questions up front to gather information. I ask, is God greater than our ability to understand? Why? Because whenever it comes to the issue of the Trinity or Jesus being God, they're going to say, how could God die? Or the Trinity makes no sense to me. I love when they say that the Trinity makes no sense. You believe in a Trinity that, 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 that doesn't even make sense. My reaction is this. Now, you've kind of figured out I'm a little bit quirky and like to be lighthearted, right? Okay. So when they tell me it makes no sense, I just go, thank you. And I sit for a bit till they finally go, why are you thanking me? Because you just admitted that your God isn't real. It's man-made and that my God, the God of the Bible is the true God. And they go, how in the world do you get to that conclusion? Oh, because you can understand your God. My God is the one that's greater than my ability to understand. I can't understand the Trinity. Neither can you. That's the God of the Bible. Your God is one you can comprehend. Drives them crazy. Now, understand, when you deal with some of these people, especially Muslims, logic is just like out the window. It it really is. I was teaching a class on on how to witness to to different groups, Muslims and all, and I told them, "You'll, you'll talk to Muslims and you'll see. I mean, PhD. You know, professors will just throw logic right out the window. Had one of the guys that was practicing what we were teaching. He's asking the questions. He says, well, "Okay, so let me get this straight. In the, in the Quran, you're believing that that you know God wrote His word through Moses, and then men corrupted it, right?" And the Muslim said, "Yeah." And then you think that He wrote through David, and and then men corrupted it, yeah? And you believe that God wrote through Jesus? I know Jesus didn't right, write but Wrote through Jesus, and men corrupted it, yeah? And then you believe that he wrote through Muhammad and it was written down years later and they collected these copies and burned the abhorrent text, but they burned the right, they knew which ones were the right ones to burn and it was never corrupted. He goes, yeah. (laughs) And the kid came to me, he's like, it was like, this is so simple logically. If God couldn't keep men from corrupting it every other time, why in the world would people believe it the last time? Well, with Islam, you have to understand something about Islam. Muslim is one who submits. Islam means to submit. It is about submission, not thinking. You obey it. So, so this is what you have, but what, what am I doing? I ask these questions up front because I'm going to use them later. Whenever I deal with someone that practices homosexuality, note I did not say homosexuals. They practice homosexuality. There's a big difference. They're not born that way. And one of the things I like to ask them to show this is I will ask them up front, I'll say, You know, I, I lust after women. Can I go have sex with every woman I lust after? They always say no. It's amazing. And I just tucked that away, gathered my information. What do I do then after? afterwards what i end up doing is i then when i when i start talking to them and they start saying well i was born this way therefore because i have desire for someone of the same sex i should be able to have sex with them i say wait no, no no if you remember we already established that just because i lust after someone doesn't give me the right to have sex with them you said that then they're stuck because they already agreed to that. Now, yeah, it's good to ask those que- the Information-gathering questions are good to ask up front. Why? Because once they kind of figure out that you're trapping them, they start being a lot more careful in answering. <laughs> and so you, you end up seeing that. It, it, I mentioned that asking questions gets you off the hot seat. When they make the, a challenge, they have to answer when, when someone tells me they're an atheist, I went on to, uh, my wife and I were blessed to, to take a, a vacation. We went on a cruise. You could pray for my wife. This is what she has to live with. Um, so my, my son joined us. And so is was my son and my wife. And if you've ever been on a cruise, they put you in this holding area. And you're like, you're going to slaughter. And, um, you know, you're, you you know, it's like you go in order. And so I turn to this guy sitting across from me who's alone and I, I start talking to him. He's, he's going on vacation. You know, he left his wife at home. Okay, I don't get that one. You know, well, I don't like vacationing with my wife. Yeah, okay, a vacation is not a vacation without mine. So, okay, I don't get that. So I hand him a gospel tract. I said, hey, did you get one of these? He said, what is it? I said, well, on that side, it's a ticket to heaven. If you flip it over, it's a ticket to hell. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. He goes, I don't need this. I'm an atheist. That's a claim, isn't it? I said, oh. Could you give me your best argument for atheism? I'm a scientist. (laughs) Okay, that's actually not an answer. Let me ask it again. Uh, Jack, what is your best argument for atheism? He says, I told you already, I'm a scientist. I said, "But, but Jack, that's not actually an answer. That's a claim. What's your argument for believing in atheism? He says, I do science. Don't you understand this? I said, no, Jack, actually I don't, because science requires God. He said, excuse me? I said, yes. See, to be able to do science, there's certain immaterial things that are required, like truth, like knowledge, like laws of logic, like right and wrong. You, you kind of need those things. You can't do science without laws of logic being universal and having an absolute truth of things. These are necessary. How could you do science without God? because there's no way that chemical reactions can produce immaterial things. Therefore, for you to be able to do science which requires truth, knowledge, laws of logic, there has to be an immaterial source for that first. That's God. So how could you do science without God? He says, "Look, I'm just trying to have vacation here." Okay, well, just read that if you get a chance. I'm not going to. Okay. God has a sense of humor, by the way. Last night of the cruise, I was looking for Jack the entire cruise. Wanted to get another conversation with Jack. I saw Jack the last night. We we had met another couple that was a Christian. They happened to, by God's providence, we were here. They sat right here. It's kind of hard to figure out whether I'm the Christian. I wear a shirt that says, God exists, he has spoken. And I walk around a ship that way. All the Christians that, you know, are, are real Christians are like, hey, I love your shirt. And we start talking. So uh, we meet this couple with their kids, we're, and we're just right next to each other. We got along very well with them, so we just said, hey, why don't we just put our tables together? So we have a table now of eight people. Well, there's one empty spot. We go to, to the seat, and there's Jack waiting in line because Jack, Jack just sits wherever they place him. And we actually managed to get assigned seating so all of us could be together. And so I'm like, hey, Jack. You waited to see? Yeah. You know, we got an extra spot at our table. You want to sit with us for dinner? Yeah, that'd be great. What were you thinking, Jack? <laughs> Did you forget? <laughs> so Jack joins us for dinner. Now, Jack is, um, he was a very interesting guy. We agreed with him politically on that. He, he writes for political things. But, you know, we're just talking. So, Jack, what kind of science do you do? Oh, I do computer science. No, I chuckled. You see, because every atheist, when I say I do science, and they say what kind of science, and I say computer science, they say that's not real science. I don't know, so I guess only if you're a Christian, it's not real science, but if you're an atheist, it's real science. Um, kind of a funny thing. So I sat there, and he, you know, he ends up bringing this up. He says, you know, the issue I have with you, with you Christians, and he's just pointing to me. He doesn't know the other couple is a Christian. There are no intelligent Christians in the world. I said, how would you define intelligence? He says, you show me a a Christian with a high IQ. I said, would 168 be impressive? He said, yes, I got that. He went, no, and by the way, you're going to have a speaker come in the spring who's even smarter than that. Just saying. Um, I'm jealous, by the way. You're going to be having Jason Lyle coming in in the spring. Outstanding. Outstanding. And he's not one of these like super intellectual types that you can't understand. So, so I said to Jack, so, so Jack goes, no, but you, none, none of you Christians do actual real type, science type things, things that, that, are, that take intelligence. Um, Jack, I got 30 years doing the same kind of science you do. So he turned to Jay, the other guy next to him. He, what do you think about this? Jay goes, well, I'm a Christian too. And I'm a mechanical engineer. <laughs> Jack just said, can we just enjoy dinner? <laughs> so, so the thing is that the questions get, and they get me out of the hot seat. They reverse the burden of proof. They can also exploit a weakness. Jack had a weakness in his argument, didn't he? In fact, this is what Jack said before he wanted to just have dinner. He said, this is the thing. You know... You Christians just make claims. At least I gave you an argument. I said, no, Jack, actually you said you do science. That's a claim. I gave you an argument that science can't be done without God because it's based on immaterial things that require God. That's an argument. There was a premise. There was support. There was a conclusion. That's how arguments work. Saying I do science is not an argument. It's a claim. That's why he wanted to just have dinner. And so you, I exploited a weakness in his argument with questions. I did the same thing with James at, the, at New York. He made a claim. I exploited the weakness of it. So I can use them to gather questions. I can use them to, to show flaws in their logic. Um, and, and questions can help to diffuse not only me but someone else. The other person, they start to think you're being respectful. I had Jehovah's Witnesses coming to my house for six to eight months every week. They came six months every week, and then they came every other week. In all that time, I never said, I never made any claims. All I did was ask questions. I put them in the position of teacher. It's the only reason they kept coming back. They had to keep going back, getting the answers to the questions, and come back with their answers. I'd only ask more questions. Now, I have an advantage to this that you don't. If any of you have read um, Tactics by Greg Kokel, you know he talks about Columbo tactic, where Columbo was this this detective that played dumb all along, just asking questions and eventually has the right answer. I was at Montclair State University after reading Greg's book, and I decided I would practice this. I was going to play dumb. Now, I understand you guys don't have the advantage I have. Dumb comes naturally to me. I can play it well and you can't. I understand. But if you practice, maybe you could do it. But I'm at Montclair State University and this guy makes a claim. He walked up to me and says, the problem I have with the Bible is it was edited. It was what? Yeah. The Roman Catholic Church took all the copies of the Bible and they edited it and replaced it and put them back, put edited copies back. Really? When, when did this happen? In the 1500s really? Wow. You know, okay. I may not be the smartest guy here. You, you seem to really know this stuff. You seem really like you're, you're very intelligent. Uh, so I I need, I can't comprehend what you're saying. And I mean, it's because if what you're saying is true, I mean, this could demolish everything I believe. So I really need help here. You know, can you help me? He says, yeah. I said, okay. Uh, l- let me take an example. Cause I mean, this is pretty big. So let me take an example. It might be easier. I said, here's a school newspaper. I said, how many copies do you think they, they print each week? He's, he says, well, I happen to be the photographer for the, for the paper. We print 1,500 copies every Thursday at 11 a.m. I said, okay, so it's 4 a.m., 4 p.m. now. So five hours ago, they, these, this came out. He said, yeah. I said, okay. Hel- help me understand this. Where could I find these papers right now? He goes, right there. I said, yeah, but but where else? He goes, I don't know, in the student center. Where else? I don't know. Students' cars. Where else? I don't know, their dorm rooms. Where else? I don't know, the trash. I said, okay, so there's papers like all over the place, even in the trash, right? So if I wanted to do what you said the Catholic Church did with the Bible, I want to do that with this newspaper. I want to collect all 1,500 copies from this stack here, from the student center there, from people's dorm rooms, from their cars, and from the trash cans. And I want to collect those, and I want to replace them with an edited copy. How can I go about doing that without anybody knowing? And he thought about it and goes, well, you can't. I said, you can't, but but if we can't do that with something that just got printed five hours ago, how do you do something, do that with something where we have... Thousands of copies. We have, we have about seven to 8,000 manuscripts of Greek alone. If you add translations of the Bible, we have about 70,000. How do you do that with something that's spread all over the world with thousands of copies? And oh, by the way, we even find some of the earliest copies in the trash. See, the trash back then was used to mummify people. P52, one of the earliest manuscripts we have of John, was found in a mummy's tomb used to mummify someone. And it's the same as today. Hmm. We have, we have these Dead Sea Scrolls that were stored away for thousands of years that everyone forgot about. And, oh, look at that. Isaiah exactly word for word. Wow. No changes. How do you do that? Everywhere, because wouldn't they have had to gone into the Qumran community and, like, replace those two so we don't have those edits, so those edits appear? And he goes, man, this isn't making much sense to me. I said, good, it wasn't making sense to me either. We can agree now. (laughs) I just played dumb. It was a lot of fun, by the way. And I didn't have any burden. The conversation was enjoyable. It was fun. And so that is one way to do that. Now let me introduce you to Dutch. Dutch was a very interesting fellow. This is a Super Bowl outreach one year. Now you're going to see Dutch, and and I'm sorry, the audio quality is not as good. Um, Dutch didn't have an open air voice to no. Um, But but one of the things is that Dutch is going to come in, and he has really cool looking hair. It's it's blonde here, you know. Orange here and then red. So his hair looks like fire. You're going to see Dutch. He is very, very upset. When he came in, he was, he was upset because one of the other evangelists somewhere up the street said he looked like Satan because of his hair. Was that, did that like endear him to them? No, that's not disarming defenses. That's creating defenses. And he's upset. Now, even though I wasn't the one that, of, that caused the offense, there's an offense that's not the gospel. And as you remember last night, I said, the only thing I want to be offensive is the gospel because the gospel is offensive, right? In our pride, we think we're good. The gospel says we're sinners. We're enemies of God and we deserve hell. That's pretty offensive to people that think they're really good people. So Dutch is offended. You're going to see him come in He's going to come in, and the first thing I want to do, I want him as a heckler, I want to shake hands. What, what am I doing? I'm going to try to get his name to build the relation. That's the politeness. I'm going to try to shake hands, build that short, quick relationship, politeness. Then I'm going to use humor, because his hands, this guy had rings on every single finger, and each ring was about that big. Okay? I'm going to make mention of it. Then I'm going to take the very thing that he was offended over, his hair. And you're going to hear me use that for humor, but I want you to notice something. Now you won't be able to get a great angle of Dutch, okay? But th- this family wanted to walk off. They did not want to engage with me. Dutch will turn around once I get his name. And he's going to start talking. He shakes my hand. Dutch is kind of, you know, a f- kind of aloof, not into the conversation yet until I start talking about his hair. And watch that, because when I do, you're going to actually see that's when his wife starts to turn. Because with the humor, you're going to see how using humor, asking questions, it actually changed the dynamic of someone who was already offended, and now he was engaging. What you can't see off camera was his daughter going like this. She ends up coming into the conversation. And you'll see that, and this is, I'm showing you this so you see, when you put these together... Using the humor, being polite, asking questions, it could take someone who's totally offended, someone who is already on the alert, looking for a debate, and disarm it. Oh, wait, hold it. I need to play the. Uh, I'm going to need to put this in. Where was the cord for that? You're not going to hear it if I don't do that. All right. Sorry about that. Let's do that again. Have you ever told a lie? I have. Uh. You have? What would that make you? A liar. A liar. Have you, right. Wrong We're one. Asking. Well, okay. When you said, want to give you a quick test. Right. Have you ever told a lie? I have. You have? What would that make you? That was the wrong video. Although we'll get to that one later. That was, that... Yeah, that's for using the law. That does come up. <laughs> why is it not playing the video? Here, that's why we come out. We come out because we care where you spend eternity. Right around that corner over there. Yes, sir. Are the They got a picture of Jesus with horns on his head. They call us a bunch of bad things. You need to be. We need to be spreading that around. Well, right I, sir, <laughs> I so ask you a question. What's uh, your name first? Dutch. Dutch. My name's Andrew. Thanks. I don't think you have enough rings on your finger. First no. off. <laughs> All right, Dutch. Do you consider yourself to be a good person? Yeah. yeah? yeah. Can I test it? I okay. First off, cool yeah. hair. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> what what kind of job do you do that you go to work like that? I'm an artist. Okay, that explains it. <laughs> so you've made your hair into an art form. That's right. Yeah. Life's too short to be boring. All right. Before you leave, I want to get Victor. Okay. All right. So. I want to give you a quick test. Have you ever told a lie? I have. You have? What would that make you? A liar. A liar. So you end up seeing how with Dutch, what offended him was someone responded to his hair, said he looked like Satan. I used that very thing to bring bring the conversation in. And I started with questions, right? I started with politeness. I used humor. This was a great conversation. Uh, probably because he likes the Seahawks i I don't get that. I just know it bothers Pastor jim um <laughs> so so the reality what you end up seeing is here's a guy who is he his his defenses were up, and they could be lowered that he 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 actually we sat and talked for about forty minutes okay and and that's the thing that I want you guys to see is that. If I was all defensive when, he's, when he was sitting there and, and calling me out for what someone else said, you know, all of a sudden I could get defensive. I could be worried. about. It. But if you start to just look to enjoy the conversation, then they will enjoy it as well. And, and that's the reality is you can enjoy evangelizing. I know we have the fear, but we have to overcome that. And so... What we're going to look at next is how to avoid being judgmental.